0: Margaret Locke is the proprietor, along with her husband Fred, of Locke's Press in Kingston, Ontario. Welcome to The Bibliophile. Thank you. I'd like to start off with a very elegant goal that you have for the press, and that is to produce a satisfying presentation of the essential message of the text. In theory, I'm creating a piece which will subtly attract readers, encourage them to think about the message and remember it, and maybe even modify their own ideas. In reality, I make the books to please myself.
1: And that's what most private press printers do.
0: Dating back to Horace Walpole.
1: Yes, and William Morris. He made them for himself and his friends.
0: So what pleases you?
1: I like a book that has a text that's worth reading. And of course, because I'm going to spend perhaps a year on it. I need a text that satisfies me and that is well written. I prefer doing texts before 1900 because there are a lot of private presses that do contemporary poetry and prose, mainly poetry. So I feel that that field is covered and most poets want a production that's quite inexpensive so that they reach a maximum number of people. Whereas I'm more interested in a beautifully made book or an interestingly made book something that really suits the text. And I'm drawn to classic texts, some translations, some medieval, some 18th century, some Victorian literature. And I want ones that are a good narrative usually, something with a message, a quote message, something that you can learn from that text or you enjoy the text a good deal, something you probably haven't read, something that goes with my illustrations that isn't too long.
0: Something that's funny, too,
1: I guess. Yes, it, in some cases. Or has cases. a serious intent. Yes. yes, there is intent, but sometimes that's a humorous aspect.
0: What goes with your illustrations, then? How would you make that determination?
1: Usually, it's a text with an underlying seriousness, with narrative. Medieval and Renaissance texts, I think, are particularly good.
0: Why is that?
1: Because they were traditionally illustrated by woodcuts. Not medieval texts, of course. They were illustrated by illuminated
0: um, manuscripts yeah. yes
1: they were actually drawn illustrations but there's a tradition of relatively simple illustration in vernacular texts and that's what I would probably be thinking of in, in the medieval the Renaissance period
0: So it's a question of tradition
1: um, Well I've always loved illustrated books so I I, I have my own idea of, of how it should be illustrated. If I read a text and I immediately have ideas as to what the illustrations could be, that's probably a good text for me to start on.
0: So it's a question of the way your mind reacts and visualizes.
1: I I visualize a text as I read it. Yes, I do.
0: And so the the best ones are the ones that, what, create the most exciting images for you?
1: Uh, Something where I can see immediately that an illustration would be if not helpful, it would bring home the point of Mm -hmm. the
0: text. The message. The message, yes. So you could assist the writer, in effect.
1: Yes, sometimes I'm assisting, I suppose, or sometimes I'm commenting on the writer. Sometimes I'm putting together two things which have struck me as being particularly interesting. So recently I did a poem by Shakespeare, Blow, 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 Winter Wind, and I put that together with my woodcut of a painting in the National Gallery, Ottawa of Jan Steen's The Lean Kitchen and he shows an artist studio, an artist's family having a very frugal meal of mussels and bread and it's partially based on Bruegel's Lean Kitchen but he's changed it so it's an artist's studio and he's just coming out of his apprenticeship for be- becoming a painter And it's a humorous piece, I feel. He's giving himself a sense. He he knows that he will not make a lot of money as a painter. And one of the lessons, in lessons, I put in quotes, one of the sentiments in this poem is that people are not going to appreciate you. That life is hard. You're going to have problems with, not the weather so much, but human relationships, getting on in the world. It's Mm. not going to be easy. And it goes with that particular painting. I feel.
0: So this is Shakespeare's.
1: It's Shakespeare. It's Shakespeare. He would not have had Jan Steen in mind at all because Steen is painting in one thousand, six hundred and fifty. Right. And it's impossible. It's impossible.
0: So you're bringing those two so together. I'm bringing those
1: two together, and I think people looking at it will also see the humor in Jan Steen's painting, which is not well known. The National Gallery doesn't always have it hanging. They will appreciate that, and they will also appreciate this text.
0: So it creates something more, obviously, than what would be created by Shakespeare alone.
1: Well, I'm hoping I'm I'm adding a nuance in a certain direction. Mm -hmm. I don't cover the entire meaning of the poem. I'm not pretending that this exactly embodies the poem. But it gives you another aspect. It emphasizes one aspect of the poem and lets you think about that, I hope.
0: It tickles your imagination and stimulates thought and greater appreciation.
1: Yes, I think so.
0: So that's the philosophy. Yes. How about the history of your press?
1: Well, we started it in Brisbane in 79. And I wanted an outlet for my prints. I was trained as a printmaker. I was teaching printmaking and then became Curator Prints and Drawings at the Queensland State Art Gallery. And I wanted a way of selling prints that didn't involve framing, because framing, (laughs) as artists know, is quite expensive and when you're doing a lot of framing, you can easily not make money. Not that I'm thinking that I could make money from my art, but I would like to break even
0: Sounds like the philosophy of T.S. Eliot when he talked about publishing poetry. It wasn't to make money, it was to try to ensure you lost as little as possible. As little possible. as possible,
1: yes. So, I thought, I've always been interested in illustration, I've always loved books, and I wanted to do books, and I thought that was natural to me. My talent, my, my mind naturally went towards narrative was fairly realistic or identifiable rather than abstract art. And figurative art, as you know, 30 years ago, wasn't all that popular, though people were still doing it. This was a way of presenting things that I thought I could do well with a text, and I've always thought that that is possibly a good way of presenting art, my kind of art because people, I find, don't always read a painting very well. But with a text in front of them, they're pushed in a certain direction, or they have a direction that's been identified, and then they're able to read the text, look at the work, and those two come together in their mind. I would, in some cases, like them, when they think of that text, to think also of my illustrations, that they found them useful going to the heart of the text, and also, when they perhaps look again at my illustrations, they think also of the text. So it's something that comes together and makes something slightly larger than mm. either of the two.
0: So you started press in 79, then you moved from Brisbane to Kingston. Yes. Where we are today in, yes. your, in your kitchen, smelling these well, fantastic the muffins.
1: To get out, so just.
0: <laughs> I just wish that we could convey the, uh, the delicious, delicious smell. Oh. Are you as good a muffin maker as you are a bookmaker?
1: Well, I have to be a cook, so yes. I think I try to do everything I do well. It's like Jane Austen who says, an artist can do nothing slovenly. Is that in one of your texts? No, it's not, but it's a good quote. And I think that is the way
0: most artists think of their work. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing well. Well, isn't it, too, about the way you live your life? I mean, Byron, his life was a work of art, wasn't it? Yes, it was. So we're in Kingston. Yes. And you came to Kingston. Yes, because my husband got
1: a job here at Queen's University. He's a professor of English.
0: So you worked off each other in a way. He was interested in certain texts that he thought deserved more attention, perhaps, than they received? He's
1: interested in translating some texts for people, and to get a good translation, you have to work at it, and you can't pay yourself for the hours involved in creating a good translation. You do it because you love the text.
0: And I assume then, You grew to love the texts that he loved? I don't like
1: all the the texts. He's more interested in the 18th century, and I'm less interested in that period. But I'm willing to look at any text. I'm a great reader, and some things we definitely have in common, such as Love of Jane Austen, things like that, and medieval texts. Why? I don't know. They, They speak to me in a direct way. I can think of applications of what they're saying. I just enjoy the way the story is told. I like ballads. I like the way they sometimes put tales together. Some of those medieval tales become the basis of fairy tales or romances.
0: So Chaucer would be a favorite? Yes. And the Pearl Poet?
1: To some extent. I can't imagine doing too long a poem. Sorofeo was is our longest poem it's a medieval poem I enjoy doing it but it's difficult to do that amount of printing and you know it's quite hard then to sell the book frankly
0: So in other words you'd have to put so much You'll time and effort put an into
1: it. I mean, you can't okay. make money out yeah. of this business anyway.
0: In other words, again, it's about not wanting to lose money.
1: I would like to break even,
0: yes. So that would be one of the driving factors behind the length of the yes. pieces that you produce. Yes. Certainly, then, this is, this is a time that influenced you. What about specific artists and why woodcuts?
1: I've always liked the black and white way of drawing. I like some colour washes, but simplified colour washes.
0: Why black and white then? What, what is it?
1: Well, I think it lends itself to a slight abstraction, a simplification of what you're depicting. So again,
0: so, going to the heart of. Yes. Yeah. So
1: you simplify and you can exaggerate certain features and it takes that very well. It, it's a natural medium for that. It's also a serious medium.
0: It's serious in the sense that if you don't pay attention, you'll cut your finger off. No,
1: no, it's, it's serious in that it's used in the way that I think some black and white film is used today. So, for example, the recent German film, The White Ribbon, filmed in black and white. And I don't know if, you, if you've if you seen that. No, I haven't. It's dark in, in places. It's making a moral point. It's explaining an evangelical family in which the father you see is selfish and hypocritical the pastor and really quite horrible to his children i I won't spoil it but the point i'm making is that this is something where you're not distracted by the beauty of color you just look at what is there and it's not reality because reality is in color
0: It's funny, when you mentioned that, I'm reminded of Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator. He could have done that in color, but it wasn't black and white, I think. But he's
1: not pretending in any way that what he's looking at is reality. I mean, there's some films that are. He's not trying to
0: replicate reality.
1: No, not at all.
0: And you're quite clear that this is your rendition of reality.
1: Yes, I'm changing it, simplifying it, emphasizing certain features, so that it's easy, I hope, it's easy to read what is there. That kind of simplification, I think, goes with my my style, but also sometimes with text.
0: So you like no-nonsense, straight to the point? I think so. Unembellished?
1: Relatively, yes. I I do use color in some of my broadsides, and I've been using more color recently, but not in a way that it looks like a photograph of reality. You always know, absolutely, that this is a drawing and it doesn't pretend. Be but it,
0: it captures something doesn't it? it
1: I hope in it does.
0: Some essence. Yes. One of my favorite woodcut artists is Margaret Lane Foster. I don't
1: know her.
0: She uh, worked in the 1920s and did the woodcuts to Kenneth Graham's The Headswoman*. I think those for me anyway are the best woodcuts I've ever seen. What? And that's exactly as you've said, they capture the emotion on the faces of the characters is extraordinary, particularly given the rough, undetailed approach.
1: I like the the German Expressionists, Schmidt, Rockloff, Heckel, etc. I like the Japanese artist Minakata. I like wood engravers, Miriam McGregor, for example, beautiful work. A lot of the English Wood engravers from the 30s. I admire their work. Gwen Ravrat, beautiful, beautiful work.
0: Really because of what you've just said?
1: I do feel Ravrat, for example, can compose a work and just absolutely fascinate you with very, very simple means. With a simple subject, she's able to convey mood and give a significance to any
0: object that she draws just with a matter of lines yeah and Great. it looks very skill.
1: simple but in fact it's it's very hard to do
0: you've identified influences and individuals perhaps we could shift gears then to the collector of woodcuts and fine press books what specifically should they be looking for
1: they should be looking for something they like that's the main thing If okay. they're going to spend money they should get something that they can look at again and again and get pleasure from it, read it again and again. It should be something that they're interested in. They may not be interested in it now, but when they look at it, there's a spark that they feel, yes, this is something that is sympathetic to their interests or their potential interests.
0: So let's say they've identified that subject matter. It's now a question of finding a work that is of very high quality, how do they determine that?
1: I think they have to keep looking and develop their eye. So if they look at the way the text is set, there has to be a care in the finer points of setting the text. So it's not only well printed, that is, it's straight on the page, the margins are well proportioned, the text area is the right shape on the page,
0: What's the right shape?
1: Well, it depends, of course, on on what you're doing. But on the whole, the lines aren't too long. There aren't too many large spaces between words if it's justified. It looks right. It just looks right.
0: And it looks right because you've seen other stuff that looks wrong. You've
1: seen other work that is less satisfying, so that the type should be solid black or almost solid black.
0: mean, it's, I suppose, one of the most obvious things, but yes, you want to see the typeface completely filled in black. And even. And not showing through the paper.
1: No, not punched through the paper, not so pale that the paper comes through. It has to be inked just right, printed with just enough pressure. Mm -hmm. so that the letterpress punches into the page, but doesn't punch through the page in any way.
0: I've got a whole stack of Grimsby, Ways Goose anthologies here, and I'm not going to ask you to point out bad printing, but I wonder if you could look through here. You have pieces in pretty well every one of these.
1: I can try and tell you what I think are the strengths. This is yours, right? It's mine. This is Allison. called Alison. Allison. So it's a medieval poem which many people would not have read. I'm trying to present it in such a way with the original spelling that people will attempt to read it. I've got a little fold out. I start with a woodcut of a young man leaning on a tree looking longingly yeah. at a girl, which then appears when you fold out.
0: So you're hiding her from I
1: hide her from you. The the refrain is there, the poem, and the translation. And there's enough space there that you feel it's relatively easy to attempt it. It's an 18-point benbow type. The beginning of the poem is in a large initial. It's just very simple. It's on something called nitigan paper, which is a pleasant, tan-colored paper. Translation is always in italic, so it's very easy for you to tell which is the modern and which is the original medieval. And I try and make it relatively simple for people. In every case? In every case, I want them to be attracted by the look of the poem and to start reading before they realise that they have been, not quite seduced, but at least attracted by what looks like a relatively easy poem to tackle. It's not
0: off-putting, is it? I
1: hope it's not. It's
0: inviting. In the piece that you wrote about your press for the private library, and I'm speaking with Margaret Locke, their proprietor, co-owner of Locke's Press, there's mention of the fact that you're overly critical of your own work and that you to point out the uh, the errors, the yes. errors and to the extent that your husband's concerned you might scare off potential buyers. <laughs> so uh, again, we won't have you necessarily criticizing your own work here, but if we move on then to...
1: Vita nostra plena bellis. Life is constant warfare. You are a soldier. And I start with something that is humorous. It's a young man on sentry duty in his cloak with the rain falling on him.
0: And his shoulders are kind of shoulders. hunched up. The rain looks almost like spears coming at coming him. At it.
1: The title is in red. The woodcut is in, in black.
0: It's welcoming, isn't it? It's fun. I hope
1: so, yes. Then I give a little quote which shows that this is from Job. And we have both the, the Latin and then a, a translation. And then the same, the Latin on this side, the translation on that side.
0: To lots of white space, not a lot of texts. Very bold, noticeable, funny. I'm not sure why they're funny, but they are. They're they are
1: the seriousness of, of the soldiers with slingshots and spears. The <laughs> young man with the sword and and shield being attacked by a large dragon slash serpent. Again, attacking someone else, and at the end, the warrior himself with again with sword and shield looking heavenward to ask for help, being attacked by by two bowmen, who also look at at the angel.
0: Almost in fright.
1: I'm hoping that these simple, not cartoon-like, but simple graphic images will keep you reading through the whole poem and appreciating the sentiment that life is indeed.
0: Not meant a to be easy. You, you, yeah.
1: You're not going to be able to get through life without a
0: struggle. The qualities there, humor in both of them. Yes. Simplicity, but here I think what's added is a movement through the, the work, using these characters. They're taking us through the work and inviting us to continue to through continue, it. To
1: continue, yes, to see how it ends.
0: That's another quality. Getting back then to, to technical points that the collector might wish to look for what else?
1: Well I think they have to like the illustration that just being beautifully printed or well composed well set up that the typography is satisfactory uh, is not enough with my work they do have to like the illustrations I'm sure some people are put off by them my style isn't for everyone but for those who do like it I hope that that adds to their enjoyment of
0: so it really is about getting in touch with your own tastes. That, that's such a fundamental question, isn't it? Is well, why do I like this?
1: Yes, I think they do need to figure out why.
0: They have to rationalize that their. it's part
1: of knowing who you are. Right. To be able to understand your taste.
0: So there's the the actual technical proficiency of yes. the work itself. The... I think also
1: what what you can perceive of the person who's done it, and I know at the Ways Goose, uh, at other book fairs, sometimes say perhaps I'm I'm handing out a keepsake or I'm showing new work and people come by. And David Crothers, who's a papermaker in Montreal, would say, ah, it's very Lockean. (laughs) So that he uh, identifies something that is original and individual in the work. Not that only I could do it, but certainly it shows a my own characteristics, my own moral values, my my own taste, my own preferences in literature. Quite often people are slightly put off by, say, a, a poem by Shakespeare, and I'm using the first folio with the original spelling, and therefore it's a bit harder for them to read it. And nowadays, let's face it, not everyone has read Shakespeare, not everyone likes Shakespeare, And yet I hope that I make it such that it is sufficiently compelling that people will persevere and read those beautiful words, that beautiful text, and really appreciate the poetry or the prose. And in some cases we have done things that are scholarly and are unusual. Mm -hmm. So for example, Fred translated the poem by Johnson which he wrote in Latin, Know Thyself, when he was had just finished the revision of the fourth edition of his dictionary. And amazingly, he could write Latin poetry in his head while traveling and remember it. And he wrote this in the coach. He then wrote it out. It's a lovely poem and expresses his seriousness and his humor as well. It, it reveals Johnson, an aspect of Johnson that I hope people will find sympathetic that he's someone who lays down the law very sure of himself, his prose gives you no room to move tells you exactly what he thinks. but in this case there's a warmth about it that I think even modern people will react and find sympathetic. And, and the it's scholarly, scholarly aspect has, it yeah. has been translated but Fred translated into the original hexameters, he added notes in an introduction and therefore opportunity for people to really read this poem in what I hope is an ideal way and really engage with it.
0: So your your point then is that you should look for a kind of an originality, yes. uh, an idiosyncrasy.
1: I'm looking for a very small section of collectors who do want a text that is as it should be, That is, it's either taken from the first edition or if it's not, I tell you what I've done to change this text. So that they're serious about text and they're serious about how it's interpreted, how that person has really treasured those words and tried to present it in the best possible way.
0: That's beautifully said. (laughs) (laughs) The the next obvious question then is, who do you recommend? Who do you love? What? Well, first of all, let's look at your works. What should the collector go for in your oeuvre?
1: Oh, my. I think it, it's probably someone who likes literature. And I suppose most private press books are like that. But someone who appreciates older literature, because I, I very rarely do work that was written after 1900.
0: What should they look for w- within what you've produced? How many uh, books have you produced in total? Uh, 11
1: or 12. Oh, that's it. Yes, uh, but then but the they Ways- take... more pamphlets, the waste Goose pamphlets. And I've done quite a lot of broadsides. Okay. So single sheets that people can put up.
0: Anything that's particularly expressive of who you are?
1: Uh, probably it's it's the woodcuts. The way they're done the way they're integrated with the text i mean i I have done some books with etchings or engravings we have done one book where a friend did the illustrations but mostly it is woodcut and i think illustrations are so important to the way you look at a text in a private press book that those are, are the things that that the collector probably looks at and decides from that I think people are willing to take a chance on some texts if they know the author.
0: Shakespeare, for example. Yes.
1: We don't do contemporary well-known authors necessarily, not ones that are trendy. We're not going to do anything on vampires. (laughs) So, Um. it has to be something... Can speak to contemporary people, but also through the ages, but through the yeah. ages, it's yeah. something that will last. <laughs> I feel as though I should get some of my work. Can okay. sure. I get some? Yeah, of my that's city? great.
0: Now, if you have only, and I shouldn't say only because obviously it, it, it's a lot of work, but if, if you have produced 12 works, 12 yes. books, yes. someone could basically acquire your entire. Output.
1: Yes, they could.
0: And how much would that cost them? Well, my books, I try and price them so
1: that people like me could buy them. So <laughs> the books are between, well, when I started out, they were under $100. But those books are now, this will please your collectors. I think the last time I looked one up, The Pobble Who Has No Toes, which has engraved illustrations, it was 3,000 Australians
0: which is, what, about 2,500 Canadian, yes,
1: thereabouts? Yes. I think it's foolish to try and figure out which private presses are going to yeah. make a lot of money. She what I've tried to do is price them between about $225, which, for example, I think my one of my more recent ones, The Legend of St. Laura. And for that, I'll just itemise what you get. Decorative paper, which is hand-painted with a, an original woodcut on top pattern of you of sprigs and flowers and stars which per- relate to the shroud of St. Laura, a small label and a very nice border binding with cloth spine. You get paper that was handmade by Wendy Kane of Newburgh who's a friend of mine. Newburgh is two quarters of an hour to the west of Kingston.
0: Newburgh, Ontario.
1: You get my four of full page illustrations and the whole poem from a Peacock. Uh, Grillgrange. It's it's peacock, so it's uh, mid-19th century. I think the illustrations add to the look of of the work. For example, there's no title page. It starts off with a headpiece which shows the two angels holding a picture of the saint.
0: You took that idea directly from...
1: From from Italian saints' lives from early 16th century, Mm -hmm. which start with a picture of the saint, and then they start with the description of the saint or the poem or whatever it's going to be because the person buying it wants the efficacy of the image as well as the words so that for example saint sebastian was a saint that you could pray to to be saved from the plague and therefore you wanted the image and the prayer right together
0: so you could sort of hold it up and, well, and pray to
1: it well you could have it on your wall or it could be pasted up in the church And people could recognize from the image that that was Saint Sebastian, and if they were illiterate, they could ask someone to read it, could memorize it. When they see the woodcut of the saint, they are reminded of the text. And Um, then there's uh, another headpiece for the coliform.
0: Which is, it's numbered and signed.
1: numbered and signed, yes. For most private press, you, you want it numbered and signed. And I do very small editions, under 80 copies. Rarity is,
0: is something to consider, isn't yes, it?
1: Yes, it is. And so you're getting some unique features there. You're getting the unique decorative paper, the unique paper, woodcuts that are in a very small edition, and I, I don't usually sell separate illustrations. But in order to get the illustration, you have to buy the book.
0: So it's like children. You don't have favourites.
1: Well, I, I do have some favourites, yes, of course.
0: What is your favourite? So,
1: but I'm not sure I, I can give you the absolute favourite no i can't i like the Tolstoy short story how much land does a man need
0: oh it's in wood and it's, isn't? And it's in it's an open box and you open ah. it
1: out and you see what looks like two slates that you can write on and this is because when i first came across this it was a story in the school reader and again but you're getting you're getting a, a half title in russian which i cut in wood you're getting a title page with again the title in english cut in wood and you're getting a number of headpieces and illustrations which are sized and put into the text so that the text fits around them. The text always fills the page and yet each new section starts with a headpiece and a word or two in capitals.
0: I'm just looking at at the watermark here, what's that?
1: So it's it's Barton Green handmade paper. So it's an English handmade paper.
0: It's lovely, yeah. Very
1: simply done, the paper is, if not unique, it's the made by Catherine Nix, a paper maker using plant fibres only in Canberra in Australia. This refers a bit to the way Australians are very keen on acquisition of property. Even from a very early age, there's a whole cadre of, of Australians who I think are overly concerned about property and acquisition. And mm. this is what this story is about.
0: Poking fun at it? Or? Well,
1: it's not, exactly, it's not poking fun at it. It's serious because um dies because of his greed for more land. This is what Tolstoy is critiquing, that the, the greed to possess it's actually kills you, it can kill you, mm. and it does in this case. So mm-hmm. you have here his death and his servant who buries him. He has all this land, but he's also dead.
0: And the servant's still alive.
1: An act of charity, he doesn't need to do this. He does actually bury. And you can see the devil wanting the soul and the angel. So you're not sure
0: which way he's going to go. But
1: you know know for sure it is the devil that has tempted him to want more land. He dreams of this. He knows that Mm. it's a mistake. And yet he walks and walks and walks. I don't know. You don't know the story. The Bashkir's allow him to walk around in one day. If he can walk around this plot of land, that's his. So what he does is, of course, see more and more land that he wants, and therefore tries to walk around too large a plot of land while he dies?
0: It's bound with the string?
1: Just sewn onto linen tapes, and the linen tapes are laced to the paper cover. Beautiful. A- and the end papers are, again, English handmade paper from linen. So quite, it's a very strong binding, but very simple one. So I guess that's one of my favorites.
0: Okay, this this is a magnificent uh, looking thing here too. It's, it's a, what colored woodcut?
1: It's, well, it's yes, it, it's a woodcut, and then I've hand colored in four or five colors of watercolor. This is a Shakespeare poem.
0: This is a dingbat of some sort. Yes, it is. But it's just it, it's very reminiscent of the 1890s. Is there but, a better word for that? Yes,
1: it's very old. It's called Fruit and Vine, and it originally it was a bunch of grapes and then a vine leaf on top. It's an ornament that goes back to the Renaissance, which is why I'm using it, though this of course is a 19th or early 20th century version of that very old concept of uh, an ornament.
0: Well, if we move then from Your production, finally, could you give us, and again, the collector would be foolish to acquire with the intent of making money.
1: It's probably his heirs that are going to make money rather than his If, yeah. If that.
0: Then could you identify some presses that you're particularly impressed with for us? Oh my. The, The works you'd love to possess?
1: Well, there's several English presses that I've admired. So the Rocket Press, actually, while it was going, was was very impressive. Uh, The ones that have published Miriam McGregor's wood engravings. Some of the early ones, it's hard to really name names. I'm quite conservative about my typography. So the kinds of things that I like are the Officino Bodoni, Italian press. It's a private press, and yet it, it was commercially viable and did quite large editions beautifully done. Mario is just a fantastic designer. Those are from the 1950s, say 60s, and earlier. The designers I like are people like Chicold, Hermann Zaff, ones that really you, you feel they take the time, they have a really superb eye for both design, for tone, being able to influence the look of something just by choice of type. Uh, I don't have a lot of types, and I'm not that interested in types, but I admire people who can use them in that very subtle way to give people an idea either of the era or the nationality of the, the text they're going to read.
0: Anything you'd like to leave our excitable collector okay.
1: with? Okay. I I'll I will do, a, do a plug for my letterpress course. I, I teach a letterpress course, Introduction to Type, to typesetting and letterpress printing. And I think there's nothing like being able or having done it once to really give you an insight as to both the, the, how time consuming it is and to give you an idea also of what you should be looking for. Doing it. Just doing it, yes. Mm-hmm. So if you can, I know in Ottawa, there's a great group of people who are running workshops and you can go and just try it. And that, that's what I would suggest collectors do both try woodcut, try printmaking, try typesetting and printing, try the exercise of taking a favourite poem or piece of prose and just turning it into what you hope will be a compelling broadside that everyone looks at and wants to read. Then you have have an insight (laughs) as to what can go wrong and how how difficult it is to get it right and yet how satisfying it is
0: That's great advice. I should mention too that I've heard from a number of different sources how terrific your uh, workshops are. Thank you. How often do they take place and where and how can people uh, sign up? Well,
1: I try and run them maybe four times a year, three to three or four times a year. I can only take three people. If I can gather together three people who've decided on a certain weekend, then I run the course. Be flexible then? I try and tell various people in Ottawa and here in Toronto that I'm going to try and run the course in two or three months' time and give them a couple of dates that are possible and then email people. They email me back and we try and set a time. So it's unusual in that there aren't specific dates, that there isn't a a definite schedule. But really, I, I feel people want to do a course and they want to do it now or in the next four months and that's what I'm catering to.
0: Is there a website?
1: I, I do not have a website. Phone number? It's 613 544 I should mention there's another letterpress course being run by the Barbarian Press. Oh, out west? Out west, yes, in Mission, B.C. There you have to commit a whole week and you do a pamphlet. So for people who aren't quite ready to spend that amount of money to get out there and spend that amount of time. Get in touch with your local private press printer. <laughs> okay. And there are open studios as well, sometimes
0: where people can try letter press and just see what it's like. Thanks for your time. Okay. You're it's been welcome. Enlightening and extremely enjoyable. Okay. Thank you. I've been speaking with Margaret uh, Locke, who along with her husband uh, Fred, owns and operates Locke's Press in Kingston, Ontario. Thanks again.
1: Okay. Now would you like some tea?